You may be seated. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading verses 24 through 31. We uh, were going to begin the gospel according to Luke today, uh, and I was going to actually do the first sermon in my Philippians series as well. But then I got really sick, and uh, the entire week consisted of me um, sleeping mostly, and then waking up and saying, ah, I feel a little better, the fever has subsided, let's get some work done, and then half an hour saying, I think I need to take a nap. Um, And then that cycle repeating again and again and again. So I didn't make much progress and decided instead what I would do was uh, uh, do a revision of two earlier sermons, but which are relevant upon the particular subject. Um, This one is a revision of a sermon that was preached, I think, 15 to 17 years ago. I can't even remember. So there are some of you who aren't even alive when it was preached, so you won't have heard it. Um, But in any event, uh, let us go before the Lord and ask for his, his blessing and his help. God, our Father, I do thank you, Lord that you have given us your word to be a light and a lamp to guide us. I pray now, Lord, also that you would not only instruct us inwardly, that you would help us to understand what it is that you intended to do by giving us your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to, uh, to stand upright and to preach this morning, uh, to not falter and to be clear and concise, succinct, and, O oh Lord, true in everything that I say. May I, O Lord, divide your word aright. May your people receive it as you would have them. And I pray, Lord, that our ears would be open and our eyes also to see all that you have given to us and to hear all that you have to tell us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. John chapter 20, and I'll be reading verses 24 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but uh, it has often been the case that I have put down a book, and I, I have completion issues, so it's very uncommon for me to start a book and then not continue through it, even if it's frustrating. But I've often finished a book, and I've put it down, and I've said, Well, I understood what was in it, but I don't understand why the author wrote it. Why did he feel it was necessary to put this down on paper? What was his point in doing so? 
Or perhaps, you know, it, it told a tale, but ultimately you can't really figure out what the message that was meant to be conveyed was. Um, it is often the case, obviously, that uh, the author is writing simply because he wants to put something entertaining down on paper. You know, he had a thought or something like that, and he wants to tell you a tale. It's like a joke, something to amuse somebody, and then you move on. There's nothing particularly much about it. Or perhaps it's, you know, kind of brain candy, interesting information. I love those little podcasts that tell you something that you didn't know. There's not much of a point to it, but you come away uh, understanding something about electricity or faraway places planets or, or how to make biofuel that you didn't know before. And so that's, uh, it's worthwhile. Uh, sometimes, obviously, people write to titillate or they write for the more purient uh, side of people in order to make money and things like that. You know that that was their aim, ultimately. Or they just want to write something that is a memorial to somebody that they thought was interesting. Or they just want to rant. They want people to listen to their opinions. You can figure it out that way. But in this case, when it comes to uh, Holy Scripture, like the Scripture that we just read, uh, we have to ask a deeper question. Why were these accounts given? Were they merely memorials left for a friend? Why did the authors of the four gospel accounts, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, write the books that they wrote? Why did they take the time to do this? I mean, writing in those days was far more laborious. There was no word processor at that point in time, obviously. You didn't have a little red line when you made a mistake. You actually had to write things down on expensive sheets of papyrus using a pen. And you had to be as concise as possible because papyrus was expensive and it was very difficult to copy out these things. So they went to considerable... Uh, expense, and they went to considerable uh, effort in order to produce these works. Um, I felt it was probably worthwhile, given the fact that we're about to go through the book of Luke, to make sure we knew the answer to why it was the four gospel accounts were written, why they were given to us. Uh, we can dismiss the idea, obviously, out of hand that they were writing to make money. Uh, there was no New York Times bestseller list back then when they originally wrote. Uh, there were no copyright laws at all. They did not receive any money. Uh, they wrote their gospel accounts on scrolls, and then these scrolls, of course, were freely copied and distributed amongst the Christian community. In fact, that's what they intended to happen. They wanted those scrolls to be read by the people who received them, but more importantly, they wanted them to be written, then uh, copied and, and sent out to the other churches. It is funny, though, when you think about it, isn't it, that the Bible is the best-selling book of all history? Uh, it's sold more copies than any other book that has ever been written. More have been produced of it than any other. And yet the original writers didn't make a, a single cent from writing it. Uh, at least not in a this-worldly sense, of course. They are richer by far than any best-selling author. So, what was it that they wrote for? Was it a political agenda? Was it a social agenda? Did they want to share their inspiring story to, to make us feel better? Did they want to leave a memorial, as I said before, to their friend Jesus? Uh, plenty of biographers have done that. They simply just wanted the world to know about this person that they knew so well. But uh, we don't have to wonder happily about why it was they wrote these things down. John... And ultimately, the Holy Spirit, who inspired and directed John, didn't want anyone to wonder about what he wrote about, why he was writing what he did. 
He wanted his readers to know why all of this, this stuff that he wrote down, the things that he particularly highlighted in Jesus' uh, life, and particularly in the last two weeks of his life, why he wrote it down and why it really matters. So he wrote his reason for writing into the gospel. We actually just read it. He left this note, which we call his telic note. That's T-E-L-I-C. It comes from the Greek word telos. Uh, and the Greek word telos means ends. It uh, explains the ends of his, his writing. So we know that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever from the shorter catechism. We know the end of John's writing here from what he wrote down. Incidentally, Luke has a similar note, uh, but he puts it in the beginning of his gospel. We'll read that as well. But first, John tells you what he didn't write. Uh, He didn't even attempt to set down everything that Jesus did. None of the gospel writers claims to give an exhaustive history of the earthly ministry of Christ. In fact, John tells you no one could do that. The last line of his gospel, as a matter of fact, says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's uh, John 21, 25. So he says, I did not write down all the things he did, all the other signs, that is, all the other miracles that Jesus did. And that's interesting to me, because normally, as as people have pointed out, when you're writing about a dead prophet, you want to collect everything about them. You want to write down every single thing that they did that was of note. Uh, That's what happened, for instance, after Muhammad died. First, they put together his teachings, and that became the Quran. And then they put together the hadiths, which were the traditions about his teachings and his actions. And they tried to grab everything they could about him after he was gone. Every scrap of paper, every piece of bone with an anecdote scrolled upon it or so on. Because in the end, that was all they would ever have from him. That was all they would be able to to give to people about Muhammad. But John, and note this is very important, he doesn't feel the need to write that way. And this, as, as I said, is, is, is incredibly important to understand. He doesn't feel the need to write that way because he's not telling you about someone who is dead. John is introducing you to a living person, the Lord Jesus. And in a very important sense, that is what the Gospels are. They're an introduction for you to meet Jesus. And so they give you the the essential information that you need to know to get to know him. They don't tell you exhaustively everything there is to know about Jesus. And I hope you see that the, the gospel authors write as if they want you to have your own relationship with Christ. They want you to, to be in communion with him. Now, when you, uh, and I, I mean, you understand this, when you are introducing somebody to somebody else, uh, let's say you have a friend with a health problem and you want to introduce them to somebody you think can help them because they've helped you in the past. Uh, you don't say, John Smith was born in 1968 into the small town of Clifton. The earliest recorded memory was of the red swing in his backyard. Friends remember him as a curious but cheerful child who would someday uh, be known as, as the cheerful, curious child who, 30 years later, graduated from medical school and became an excellent doctor and then go on for hours like that. No, rather you would say, 
as your friend is standing there next to the doctor, I'd like you to meet my good friend John Smith. He's an excellent doctor who helped me when I had the same problem you seem to be suffering from. You don't go through this tedious, ridiculous biographical information. Uh, you may do that in a promotion ceremony or something else, but you're not going to, you're not going to rehearse all of the information about that, that friend. You want them to know the most important things about him that are important to them and why they need to know him or why he is a good person to know. Now, when it comes to, to Christ, that is the job of the pastor. It's my job as a preacher, for instance, to introduce people to the same Jesus I know. And that's why if I didn't know Christ personally myself, I couldn't preach. I couldn't really preach. Now, there have been men in the past who have stood in the pulpit and who have preached about Jesus without actually knowing him. One of the founders of the uh, ARP church, Ebenezer Erskine, recounts that for years he used to preach about Jesus. He says he used to fix his eyes on a, a rock or a brick at the back wall of the church, and he would preach about the life of Jesus for a set amount of time, and then he would finish. But that was all he was doing. But was that really preaching? I, uh, I don't believe so. He, after he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, admitted that wasn't really preaching at all. Now, beloved, I, I must tell you, I don't stand up here to tell you stories about someone long gone in the hopes that you will find helpful advice from their teachings. Neither do I want to lead you into some sort of uh, repeated tradition designed to make us all feel better from week to week. Not at all. What I do is essentially the same thing, or at least I hope what I do is essentially the same thing that John the Baptist did when he pointed to the living Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I have said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. The preacher's primary call, regardless of who that preacher is, is to be like John the Baptist or evangelist in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress to direct dying people to the living Jesus. And the reason that they are to do that is not just so that you can know about him. It is so that you might know him, that you might know him really and personally and by faith. And that is John's purpose, as he tells us in writing, to tell you what John and the other disciples saw themselves, what they experienced as they were with Jesus day by day. They tell us these were some of the miracles that he did that proved to us that what he said and what the prophets said about him was true. They are attempting to confirm to you that the one whom they were with for three years was and is and always really will be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. And what was it that Jesus said about himself and that the disciples and the prophets said about him? Well, exactly what John states in verse 31, in these verses here, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. As Calvin put it, the mediator between God and men, the Father's supreme ambassador, the only restorer of the world, and the author of true happiness. But this Jesus who is the mediator between God and man 
He is no mere man. uh, John desperately wants you to know that he is also the Son of God, that this Jesus is the incarnate Word, who in the beginning was with God and who was God. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is, as Thomas put it so well, my Lord and my God when he came to that that great realization and fell before his Savior and confessed that Jesus is Lord. Had that not been the case, incidentally, had Jesus not been Lord, when Thomas knelt before him and said, my Lord and my God, what would Jesus have done? If he hadn't been God, he would have said, get up, Thomas. Like the angel, you remember, rebukes John when John falls down before him and he says, I'm a creature just as you are. This exalted angel refuses to accept worship from a mere man. But when John falls before Jesus and says, my Lord and my God, Jesus accepts that worship because Jesus is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity. John places that event, notice also there, just before the telecnote because he wants you to have the same realization. He wants you to come to the same conclusion that Thomas came to and make that same confession that Thomas made, but he wants you to do that through reading the scriptures. He wants you to come to it not through sight as Thomas did. Thomas was confronted by his living Savior there before him. He had the nail prints that Thomas had spoken of. He had the wound in the side that he had demanded. He knew There was irrefutable evidence that Jesus had risen from the dead, but he wants you to know the same thing by faith that it might be said of you, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is because Jesus really is God that he rose from the dead. And Thomas and John and the other disciples saw him that day. And it is because he is God that you can have life in his name. If he was not God, none of those things would be possible. He'd be just another dead religious prophet. But he is alive, and he ever lives to save. Now, when John says that you can have life in his name, as he does here in in verse 31, he means the abundant life that those who know Christ and have been born again will have here on earth. But much more importantly, he is referring, when he talks about that abundant, that 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 life that he's speaking of. He's speaking of the the spiritual life that we can have only through him because outside of him, you and I, brothers and sisters, and all men, all women, all children, everybody who's born into this world, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. He means eternal life also because it is only in Christ that we have hope of heaven. It is only through him that we can enter into eternal life. Only Jesus, who is the Son of God, can do this for you. Now, religious leaders can come, and they can advise, and they can comfort. Prophets were empowered, of course, in the Old Testament to do miracles. But only Jesus can give life to people like you and me. Only he can take someone who is dead in trespasses and sins, take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, and raise them from the dead spiritually and give them that desire to keep the commandments of God, to, as I said before, love the things that they once hated. 
No one else can do that, no matter how much we might want them to. Now, kids, when I was a, a child, I had a small furry pet. It was called a hamster. You guys all know what hamsters are, right? Okay. Well, uh, I loved my hamster, even though this hamster, it spent all of its time trying to escape from my cage. All night long, it would, it would spend the evening knocking the cage door up and down. No matter how tightly I secured it, it was just dead set on escaping. But I, I loved it, uh, and I played with it on a regular basis. I squeezed it and loved it and called it George, and so on. Um, <laughs> And he had a little ceramic barrel that he slept in and little chew sticks he nibbled on and a wheel he ran in and a bottle he drank from. Well, one morning I woke up and, and uh, the hamster was in the ceramic barrel and he wouldn't come out. And I was very upset. Why won't my hamster come out? And I insisted that my parents take the hamster to the veterinarian. Well, I'm sure the parents all figured out where this is going already, but... Uh, <laughs> The, uh, we took the hamster to the veterinarian. I explained the problem to him. And, and keep in mind, I'm like six or seven years old at the time. And uh, the veterinarian reached into the barrel and he pulled out the hamster by the scruff of the neck. And of course, the hamster was quite dead. But of course, I answered, I, I, I looked at him imploringly and I said, can you do something for him? <laughs> you know, the only thing that could be done for him was to dig a hole, of course, and put him in the backyard. But um, the doctor looked at me, and, and my mother said he looked at, uh, at her. And he's, you know, he, he was he was very apologetic, and he said, "No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, son. When when they get like this, there's nothing we can do." <laughs> so uh, he was only a man, and he couldn't even bring a dead hamster back to life. Let's face it. Uh, no matter how much I wanted him to do that, no man can do that. They can't bring hamsters to life when they're dead, and they can't bring people to life when they're dead. But you know what? Jesus can bring dead people back to life because he isn't just a man like you and me. He is the son of God, and he can do anything. Only Jesus could live a sinless life. Only Jesus could die on the cross and pay for your sins, and only Jesus could take out a stony heart and put in a new one and give us faith so that we can know him and then justify us by that faith alone, washing us from our sins by his blood, taking away the filthy rags of our own imperfect attempts at righteousness and then giving us, imputing to us his own perfect righteousness, enrobing us with it. Only Jesus can do that. And that is the Jesus that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John want you to know. They want you to believe in him as they did. They want you to have life in him as they do. And that is why they wrote what they did. And so here, this is the application ultimately of, of this to you. We are about to go through Luke. God willing, I, I will have the opportunity to, to preach through it and the strength to do so. And he will tell us that he wrote these things uh, because he wants us to know what happened and what eyewitnesses saw that we might know the certainty, as he says at the beginning of Luke, of those things in which you were instructed. That is, that your faith in Jesus might be established. Now, I know if you're here and if you listen to those sermons, you will end up knowing things about Jesus. 
But that isn't Luke's main purpose, neither was it John's or Mark's or Matthew's or even mine as I'll be preaching through it. They wrote their gospels not so that you might know about Jesus, know facts about Jesus, but that you might know Jesus because on the last day, knowing about Jesus, knowing that he exists, will save no one. Keep this in mind, on the last day, the demons will know more about Jesus in terms of his essential being, facts, and so on, than most of mankind. Why? Because at one time they were angels. They saw him in his glory. They know full well that he is the Son of God, and yet they hate him. They despise him. They do not know him. They have no relationship to him. And so on that last day, their knowledge will condemn them And that is a sad thing to think, that those who know the most about Jesus and yet who do not know Jesus, who do not believe in Jesus, will be the most condemned because they will have sinned against their knowledge. On that last day, what is critical is that you know him and that he knows you and that you believe in him and that you have a relation with him. You can know, plenty of people throughout the world do, you can know about Muhammad, you can know about Buddha, uh, but you can't have a living relationship with Muhammad and Buddha because they're both dead. You can't have a living relationship with a dead man. But you can know Jesus because he is alive. That's one of John's main points that he presses home again and again. Jesus lives and he lives forever. So ask yourself, right now, this moment, do I know him? Do I believe in Jesus as the Christ? Do I know that he's alive? Do I speak to him? Does he speak to me? Do I believe he is the son of God? Have I been saved through faith in him? Do you? If you do, then you have nothing to fear. That is good. You know that when Jesus returns... That'll be a day of joy for you. It'll be like meeting a a loved one at the train station who's been away for a long time. When you're reunited, for instance, with a loved one after a long deployment or after they've been overseas or or something like that, there's such joy at that that reunion. Well, imagine what it'll be like when you're reunited, reunited with Christ. It'll set all of those earthly reunions as nothing by comparison. That's what it'll be for the believer coming into the presence of Christ, whether it be when he returns to be with us or whether we go to be with him. It'll be a joyous reunion beyond our our wildest imagination. But if you do not know him, then it'll be a day when you are calling the rocks and the hills to fall upon you and hide you from the face of the Lamb, the one whom you do not know, because he will not be to you a a friend or a savior you will have said i i want him to be my judge and a fearful judge he will be because he will be perfectly just in his judgment none of us we say we want justice but we don't want justice not really we don't need justice what we need is mercy so therefore believe on jesus the son of god so that believing you might have life in his name let's go before him God, our gracious Father, we do thank you so much for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't know as much as we should about him. And we want to know more. 
But what we really need to know, Lord, is to know Christ, to know him deeply and intimately, to have that living relationship with him that only you can give us. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, put it deep within our hearts, Lord, and give us that abundant love and that joy of our salvation in knowing him. Help us now, O Lord, to live lives that show his presence in us and help us to rejoice at all that you are doing in us. We pray this.